You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Uh, last week, we covered Exodus chapters 1 through 4. Today, we're going to uh, pick up the story uh, of God's movement among his people, his redemptive uh, movement in Exodus chapter 5, and deal with the issue of despair and gospel promises in our lives. Despair and gospel promises. Uh, last week, we saw that um, God co-opted, he drafted Moses um, and additionally Aaron, because Moses wasn't very eloquent and wasn't confident in his speaking abilities. So he said, hey, Aaron, your brother is a good speaker. I'll pair him up with you. And so you can go back. Moses had fled from the land of Egypt. Um, many of you will know that story. If you don't, go back and read Exodus 1 through 4. And God had given Moses and Aaron a very specific set of instructions on what they were say, what they were going to say uh, to the elders of Israel when they got there, and then what they were going to go and say to Pharaoh. Now, the response, Moses is worried about how people are going to respond. Ever been there? Ever had something you needed to say to, to someone? Maybe even a spouse? And you weren't sure how they were going to respond. This is where Moses is. He and Aaron make their way back. They go to the elders of Israel, and we find in chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, just a review where we ended last week, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. God gave Moses instructions, he performed some miraculous acts, not just to show off, but to demonstrate his power and his ability to do what he was calling Moses to do. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. This was a, this was the response from his, his uh, fellow ethnic brethren that Moses was hoping for, but uncertain about, right? Uncertain about. And this morning, as we look at chapters five, six, and part of seven, we're going to learn something that we need to learn or be reminded of about obedience, about hope, and about God himself. Something about obedience, something about hope, and something about God himself. Let's pick up in chapter five. I'll read a little way, stop, and then we'll, we'll come back and, and work our way through it. Chapter five, verse one. Afterward, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Pharaoh's unmoved by this. He says, mm, no. How's that? 
not only no, but there's a whole lot of you guys now, and this sounds like lazy talk to me. Lazy talk among the working class, right? Ununionized. Verse seven, here's Pharaoh's response. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't, requ- don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention. Verse 12 tells us the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers and overseers or foremen stayed on them. The slave drivers were Egyptian, but the, the foremen were Israelites that were placed over working crews to get the work done. Verse 15 says, the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you mistreated your servants this way? They're being beaten for not making their quota, even though they're having to go and gather the straw that was once provided for them to make the number of bricks they're called on to make. This discussion goes back and forth. Pharaoh reinforces to them, to their face, that they're lazy. Then in verse 19, the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sit me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. You have not rescued your people at all. We learn something about obedience here. We, we learn this, that, that obedience to God doesn't necessarily make anything easier. It doesn't guarantee ease. It doesn't guarantee success as we understand it as human beings. Moses obeys, and he obeys reluctantly, but he does obey, and things get worse, not better. Have you ever been there? Have you ever known that you were walking in the will of God, doing what God has called you to do, and things get worse, not better? That can shake you, especially if they get incredibly worse and stay that way for a while. It can shake your faith. It can cause you to begin to to doubt and, and misunderstand the character and the nature of God. Dane Ortland reminds us in a a very small book about how God changes us that there is a strange though consistent message throughout the Bible. We are told time and time again that the way forward will feel like we're going backward. Now, let me tell you this. I understand this. I understand this. Several years ago, Sharon and I were presented uh, quickly and and somewhat out of the blue uh, with an invitation, a request almost, to adopt 
our twin boys, Zeke and Zane. We'd watch them just for a couple of times for a few days providing respite. We were licensed to foster and adopt, but we were letting that run out. We were both working full time and I was getting ready to start my doctorate and we're like, hey, um, God, this isn't where God has us right now. And then all of a sudden, these, these two little baby boys that we had provided respite for were called in to visit with the owner of the adoption agency. And she basically says, and she's not known for tact or beating around the bush. She said, hey, the family that they've been with, and we knew the family, can't keep them due to other issues in their family, right? They've, they've already been placed and brought back once. We don't want that to happen again. We feel like you guys are the family for them. And I'm off, in my heart, I'm thinking, there's five of us already. Are you crazy? And by the way, uh, one of them is legally blind. So we don't know what that, all that's going to entail. There are some issues there. And I said, well, how long do we decide? Sharon had more informed questions to ask. Um, I wanted to know how long we had to decide. And she said, 24 hours. So we went out, we, we stood at the van, we talked for a little bit, we're like, we've got to go home and talk to the kids, to our big kids. So we went home and we talked to J.C. Cade and Karis, who were, were all in. They were all in. Sharon and I were, were leaving uh, the next day uh, to just do one uh, quick overnight trip for, I think, our 20th um, anniversary. And so we talked to some friends, we prayed, we might have partaken of some spirits, and we got on the road the next day. And one of our friends encouraged us to make a list why we'd adopt them and why we would. Not a pro and con list. And here's what she said. She said, then I want you to ask the underneath issue with each one. For each reason why you would adopt and each reason why you would not adopt them, ask why. What is the motivation? What is the fear? What is the drive underneath that? And I thought we would have a few reasons to adopt and tons of reasons not to. Right? The American dream. But it, it turned out the other way. As we drove and as Sharon wrote and we talked, we ended up with this long list of why we would adopt and a very short list of why we wouldn't. And all of the why we wouldn't were absolutely self-centered reasons as we looked at what was underneath them. And we felt in that time a clarity from God that God was, this was something that God was calling us to do. We knew it's right. It's right generally of all Christians, not necessarily to adopt, but to care for orphans is something that we are called on to do by our God. And in the United States, that means to engage the foster and adoption system in our country in one way or another. So we know generally, right, we're walking in step with God. But we also felt specifically that these little boys, God was uniting to our family. So we called that night and said, yes. And I cried like the biggest baby you'd ever seen. So much so that Sharon was like, oh my gosh, enough. Can we go eat? Um, true story. I was on the, because I knew that the family that we had been, that, that specific type of family was over, Right? I didn't know what we were going to be, and I hadn't bonded with them any. Sharon had been with them for two or three or four days, so they'd already bonded for life. I, I had no little bonds. They were just, just, uh, uh, just little blobs that had been in our house for a few weeks to me. We adopted them, became a family of seven instead of a family of five, 
And I can tell you, nothing has gotten easier. Everything has been harder. Every single thing in our lives have been harder. We love them, we wouldn't go back and unadopt them most days. But that step into obedience wasn't a step into this glorified, beautiful, easier life. It's been hard because those beautiful little boys came to us with issues and trauma that our older kids didn't have. Now, we've been trying to give that to them as we've raised them. (laughs) We want them to be in counseling like we have to be. But everything's gotten harder, especially now when it's like $6 for a carrot at the grocery store, right? Obedience doesn't mean things are going to get easier. Look at verse one again of chapter five. Now, coming out of this this great momentous occasion when Moses and Aaron spoke to the elders of the Israelites and they bowed down in worship and gratitude for this great message that they had brought, Moses must have been thinking, we're on a roll. Maybe I am the guy for this after all. In fact, maybe I don't even need Aaron. I can do this on my own. They go to Pharaoh and humanly speaking, they're probably thinking, this is working. Even though God has warned them, Pharaoh's not gonna let them go right away and the Lord's gonna ensure that. They've gotta walk in thinking, this is going well. They make their spiel to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, they say, let my people go. This is what God said so that they may hold a festival into the wilderness. The first thing you see here is that's actually not what God told them to say. If you look back at 318, God told them to tell Pharaoh to let their people go so that they may offer sacrifices to him. But maybe Moses and Aaron got a little bit nervous knowing that they were approaching the one who considered himself a god in an empire where he was considered a god and gods are the ones to whom sacrifices are made. So maybe they're like, let's water it down a little bit. Let's just do a festival. Let's say that. And Pharaoh says, no. Who is the Lord? The word here literally that's translated in all caps in our Old Testament is Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. I don't obey him and let Israel go. It's it's not exactly how they imagined Pharaoh would respond. Our youngest daughter, Karis, got her permit this week. Thursday, was the day I took her to the Department of Driver Services and we went in with the box of stuff you have to bring to prove you live here and exist. Like, aren't I proof that I exist? So we're over at this little computer filling out stuff and we have a a physical page to fill out and an online thing to fill out. So I told Karis, you fill out the physical thing, do it neatly where they can read it. I'll do the online thing real quick and we'll be on about our business here. She said, okay. So I'm doing my thing and she's asking me questions, right? What's your social security number? What's your driver's license number? What's your shoe size? You know, how many hairs are on your head? And I said, are you sure that, are you sure that the information you're filling out is for you and not me? And she said, yes, look, it says responsible adult, which you are not, but <laughs> you're the one that's here. And I laughed, I said, that was actually good. That was good. So. It was not the response I expected to get, but it was witty and I appreciate banter. 
Um, but in light of what we just saw in 431, this was probably not the response Moses and Aaron thought they'd get. So they make another run at Pharaoh in three. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. He didn't just speak to us, he's met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness, and here they, they finally get back up to where the Lord told them to be, to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But then they waver, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. They're making him a, a little harsher, a little more unpredictable than he really is. And then Pharaoh comes back and says, I, I see what the issue is. You guys are lazy. Your people are lazy. They're always on break. They're always making TikTok videos. They never want to fulfill the quota of bricks that we have given them. So you know what? We're going to require the same quota, but we're not going to provide the straw. They've got to go gather it. And you can imagine Moses and Aaron in an instant knowing that's the information they're going to take back to their fellow ethnic countrymen who were enslaved. And in the words of one of America's finest news personalities, Ron Burgundy, you can imagine most going, well, boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. We went in to say, let us go, three days, we're gonna offer sacrifices, and he says, not only am I not gonna let you go, but I'm gonna reward your attitude, your presumption, and your laziness with harder and longer work. And that's what he does. That's what he does. They carry the news back. And in verse 21, we see the Israelites responding to Moses and Aaron. They said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. This was Jeremiah's experience. God said, go, I have a message for you and you're gonna bring it to my people. You're gonna be my messenger. You're gonna be my prophet, my spokesperson, and I am your God. And Jeremiah brings God's message to God's people, and they hate it. And in time, they hate Jeremiah. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They turn quickly. Those that are trying to help, bite them. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? Kids are, kids are funny. Kids, are, um, kids just say whatever is on their mind at a given time. Yesterday, Sharon and uh, basically everybody was gone from the house in the morning, so I was on twin duty, right? So I'm thinking, how do I run out the clock? I've got like four hours to kill here. We just hang around home. It's going to be bad. So uh, the boys started getting restless doing some stuff, and I said, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't, because like we never go to an actual restaurant where you go in. We don't want to punish the people with that. We don't want to pay for it. We don't want to have to clean up when we leave. We don't want to tip what we should tip when all of us go somewhere. So we never go in anywhere. So I, I told the twins, I said, hey, how about we get dressed real quick, and we'll go to Chick-fil-A. We can eat in Chick-fil-A, and they're like, yeah, you know, and then you can play in the little indoor playground thing. Yeah, daddy, so they get dressed, we get all ready to go. I said, hold on. I said, I gotta go to my room, I gotta change clothes real quick. I go in there, they run in there. I start to change clothes, and Zane looks at me and says, oh, daddy, you need some workout. 
Your belly is very big. He said, some workout like this. And he lays down on the floor and starts doing little kid push-ups. And I thought, you know, for, for a child that has to be taken everywhere by me, whose very life is sustained by the provision I so generously offer, that's a bold statement. But this is how kids are. Verse 22, Moses returns to the Lord. And you see here that Moses doubts God's goodness, he doubts his purpose, and he doubts his actions. And I'm telling you, church, if you've walked along with God, if you have much tenure in life, you have been through a season where you can relate to Moses here. I will say this, though. At least Moses is going to the Lord. He says, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? You hear the doubt of God's goodness there? Why, Lord? Why have you done this to the people? What's wrong with you that you would bring this on them? And Moses doubts God's purpose. God's purpose. He says, is that why you sent me? I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why you called me and I said yes and I've followed you and this is where I am. And this is what's happening. I don't understand your purpose, Lord. And then he doubts God's actions. Verse 23, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. The streetway is, what are you doing? You're not showing up, God. Things aren't working like I thought they would. This is not going how I imagined it would when I said yes. When I took a step of faith. We learned something about obedience in Exodus. It's not easy. It doesn't guarantee a rose garden. It doesn't guarantee things will be easier. Often when we obey, things are a little bit harder, but we also learn something about hope. We learn something about hope. Hope is one of those words that's hard to define, but you know it when you have it and you know it when you don't. Any of you ever walked through a season that was so long and so uncertain and so painful and so confusing that you felt hope sliding? out of you, that you felt hope draining out of you. That's a low place to be. What we learn here is that hope, true hope, as we move into chapter six, the kind of hope that gives power for living in seasons of great discouragement and despair is hope that, that is firmly rooted in gospel promises. It's hope that's firmly rooted in gospel promises. It's not just sort of uh, well wishes for your future. That's what prayer is culturally in our nation right now. Everybody's praying for everybody. And what they mean, oh man, I, yeah, we're gonna pray for you guys is we're gonna wish you well, we hope the best for you. Not that they're actually interceding on your behalf before the God of all creation, holding you before him, trusting him. Look at this hope. Let me just, let me point out briefly as we go through, uh, through chapter six, 
Five aspects of gospel hope that we see here. The Lord says to Moses, in response to Moses' doubting God at this point, and can I just remind you, God's big enough to handle it. Be honest with him. Don't give him church prayers. He wants you to be honest. God doesn't have a unique separate language for you. Of these and the vows and the vines and the thuses that you use when you speak to him, and everybody else, it's just street-level slang. Just come to God and talk to him. He listens. Chapter 6, the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Let, let me tell you something. This is just conjecture. But I wonder if things had gone easy from the start, if maybe Moses and Aaron would have thought it was them who was at work instead of God. Sometimes when everything you touch turns to gold, not sometimes, oftentimes, Christian or not, when everything you touch turns to gold, you start to think you're the gold maker. You start to think it's just you. You're just that gifted. Can I just say you're not? You're not. It's God at work here. And God brings Moses and Aaron very quickly to a point where they're already on their face with him again. And he's saying, don't worry. I'm about to do this. And you're going to see it. Look at verse four. We kind of start to slide into gospel promises here. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them a land, the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Once again, when God hears and he remembers, he's getting ready to what? To act. He's getting ready to do something. He's getting ready to move. And then we see one aspect of gospel promise here. Deliverance. Liberation. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. You ever been caught in something where the only hope you had was for God to say, hold on to me, I will bring you out. I have. Maybe you don't get yourself in as big a mess as I do. But there have been times where I had to come to the Lord and say, God, this was all of my making. It was not my intent, but this mess is all mine. But I can't get out of it without you. Will you help me? We're beginning to get glimpses of the God who fully acts in Jesus Christ on the cross here. That's why Exodus for the people of God throughout the centuries has been the great Old Testament picture of redemption, of salvation, of deliverance, of liberation. That's what we see next by way of gospel promises. Not only is God going to deliver them and liberate them, he's going to redeem them. Look at that. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you. I will bring you back to myself with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. We've got deliverance, liberation, 
got redemption or salvation as gospel promises. The third one we see here is adoption. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. It's one thing to set people free to deliver them. It's another thing to redeem them. In a sense, redemption is, is more than liberation and deliverance in Exodus. Redemption is an act of freeing them from who they are in themselves apart from God. In a sense, I will redeem you from you and adopt you. I'm going to bring you to myself to be my people. I will be your God. Then, look at this, look at this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You will know through my work. Verse four, or, or verse eight, we see another, a fourth aspect of gospel promise that we see here, inheritance, inheritance. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, that the meek will inherit the earth. Well, if there's anything that Americans ought to struggle with as biblical truth, it's that statement, that the meek, not the dominant, powerful, affluent, educated, good-looking, but the meek will inherit the earth. 1 Peter 1, this passage isn't gonna be up on the screen, but I just want you to listen to the echoes of Exodus in Peter's mind as he's writing. Praise be, verse three of 1 Peter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's guarded, it's protected, it's sustained, it's held onto for you, child of God, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. First Peter is encouraging his listeners, his audience, to continue in the faith, to contend. He says, even though now you're struggling, you're hurting, even though now life is characterized by loss and death, and pain, and sickness, and tears, and sorrow. Hold on, because you've received an inheritance in Jesus Christ that's greater than all of this. And all of these trials are, are, are being used by God to prove the genuineness of your faith, and that inheritance that belongs to you, you can't lose it, because it's not held by you. It's held in heaven by God who gives it to you. So it is certain and sure. 
Verse nine, Exodus six. Moses reported this to the Israelites. Moses reported all that God had just said to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. It looks like Pharaoh's winning here. It looks like his plan to work them into the ground and put a stop to this foolish talk about leaving, taking a little, uh, a little sabbatical to offer sacrifices to their God has been put down by the work. Philip Ryken put it this way, they were so broken that they would not listen to even the promise of freedom. You ever been, you ever been that low? You ever been that low that no word of encouragement at the time could bring you up from what you were feeling? No, no offer to, to go and to do something, to, to take up this or that, to receive anything. It just had no effect on you. What you need in that moment, what I need in that moment, what we have to have in that moment is God himself. R.C. Sproul said, hope is called the anchor of the soul, quoting Hebrews six nineteen, because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. In fact, to John Calvin, hope was synonymous with faith. Hope was simply faith held onto in practice. If you, want, if you want these quotes, they're all in the notes section of your app, so you can turn there and find them there. The people are struggling. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. No more three-day this or that, no more offering sacrifices, just go tell him, tell him to let them go. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, he argues from lesser to greater here. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Mo Moses is trapped in self-doubt. Moses can't get his eyes off himself and on to God. This is a consistent human struggle. Sometimes our eyes are on ourselves because we're making too much of ourselves. We're narcissists, and we believe that we're the greatest thing in any given space. Sometimes our eyes are on us because of our brokenness, because of our insufficiency, when they should be on God, period. The one through whom we learn to see ourselves, just as God himself views us if you're in relationship with Christ. If you're not, you're on your own this morning. God sees you exactly as you are in your sin and rebellion and rejection of him. And he offers you forgiveness, redemption and reconciliation in Christ. But you've got to repent. You've got to acknowledge with God that you're a sinner, that he's right and you're wrong. And his love poured out in the cross on Christ through his death and resurrection is enough. It's all that's needed and you want it. Because you see yourself as you are now. And you throw yourself on God and say, God, I need you. I need you. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. But if you 
have already done that. If you are alive with the Spirit and by the Spirit of God, God views you through the righteousness and beauty and sufficiency and obedience of Christ himself. Now, when you roll on into the last half of chapter six, we have a genealogy here. And just a a quick word about biblical genealogies because most of us read right past them just like we're going to do this morning for the sake of time. But even if it's in a reading plan or if you're studying a book, doing verse by verse, most people will move right past genealogies. And I just want to encourage you that genealogies are in the Bible because God wants to communicate something to us. God in in the genealogy as a whole is trying to to say something to us. That's why it's there. And usually there's there's a fairly singular truth or theme that drives who's listed in a genealogy. In other words, it's, it's not exactly this man and then this man and then this man and then this man. It's a fairly accurate portrayal, but God was moving in the hearts and the minds of biblical writers to put together a faithful genealogy in a way that was going to communicate what he was wanting to communicate at a given time. And when you look, when you look at this one, we won't read through it, but you can go read through it and play with the names if you want to. You see that, that most people listed in this genealogy which is the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, they're never heard from again and or what we know about them is not exactly glowing, right? They're the, they're the family member you don't ever talk about, right? You're like, I know, but he's a distant cousin. Look, I know, we've known she's crazy for years. If you go back and you look at verse 20, you see that Moses and Aaron's dad married his aunt. That's different, isn't it? You can imagine family diff- uh, dinners were a bit awkward. Mom, aunt, I'm, I'm not sure what to call you. That's bizarre. You see Korah in verse 24, who's actually swallowed by the earth later for orchestrating a rebellion against Moses. You see all kinds of sexual deviancy, disobedience, weirdness, judgment of God in this genealogy. And then verse 26. It was this Aaron and Moses. As if the writer of Exodus wants us to understand they're a little baffled by God's choice too. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Egyptians out of Egypt. The same Moses and Aaron. Let me go back real quick through those characteristics of of gospel promise that we find here. We find deliverance in verse six. We find redemption also in verse six. We find adoption in verse seven. We find inheritance in verse eight. And then we find the last characteristic here in chapter seven. Before we get there though, look at verse 30 of chapter six. But Moses said to the Lord, Moses said to the Lord, God has just commanded Moses to go back to Pharaoh again and tell him everything he said. Moses says to him again, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Same excuse he made in 6.12. We find that Moses still feels inadequate. Can I just tell you that feeling inadequate, feeling inadequate has nothing to do with God's ability to use you. Feeling inadequate has nothing to do with God's desire to choose you. For you to be a useful vessel, 
a glorifying vessel to God. Seven goes on and we see the last characteristic of of gospel promise upon which we root our hope. We see judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. He says, the Lord does to Moses, the first couple of verses of seven. You're going to tell Pharaoh everything I said, verse three, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And if this unsettles you, be here next week because we're going to deal with this issue pretty well next week of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. We see judgment and then we see mercy. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. You see the missional heart of God here. He's already said, then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, to the Israelites. But now he says, when I bring judgment, I'll also send mercy in that my judgment will reveal the truth of my identity to this pagan people. And they too will know that I am the Lord God of creation the Lord God of the universe, that I reign supreme, that I reign supreme. Exodus is a missional handbook. If you are a Christian, you are a missional human being. None of this nonsense should ever come out of your mouth about, well, well, why should we go there or there? Because we've got people around here. Do you not know anything about church history? Do you not know anything about scripture? Does it not dawn on you that Jesus stepped out of glory to come here? What if he'd sit around and said, ah, we got fallen angels to deal with, Father. Those suckers on earth can fend for themselves. We are to go here and we're to go there. And your life will not be complete as long as you resist that and we will not be complete as a church as long as we stick our nose in the air about it. In fact, it is often those who go there that end up doing the most here. I don't know why, but I do know that that's how God works and that's how God has worked for a long, long, long time. God says, I'm about to do what I'm gonna do, but it's not just for you. Even the purpose of my judgment on the Egyptians is that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord God of all creation. Verse six, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So they were not what one might call spring chickens. They were up in age. They knew how things worked. Exodus, this section, teaches us something about obedience, that things don't get easier simply because we obey. They often are harder. Teaches us something about hope, that the kind of hope that you and I need to fuel our lives through seasons of despair and discouragement and darkness has to be hope that's rooted in gospel promises. Where we can go back and say, God, I will hold on to you through this because I know you to be the God who tells me this and you are able to do what you say. 
And then finally, and extremely briefly, we learn something about God. We learn that time and again, God is patient and compassionate. Patient and compassionate in light of Moses' disbelief and hesitancy about obeying his word. John Newton said this, said, our righteousness is in him. And our hope depends not upon the exercise of grace in us, but upon the fullness of grace and love in him and upon his obedience unto death. Where's your hope this morning? Where's your hope anchored? And by default, your joy. Let's be really, really honest. Are those things anchored this morning in the idea that that you should be getting more than you are? that you deserve better from God, that you deserve easier from God, that you deserve more blessing from God. That's natural for all of us to think, but I'm telling you it's sin. And it reveals a lack of understanding about God and his goodness, the grace he's poured out on us in Christ and the common grace that gives your heart the order to keep beating this morning so you're sitting where you are. And it betrays something about us, about how very dark Our hearts are in sin, even though we've been redeemed and we're working out our salvation by God's good mercy. Tara Lee Cobble, who I quoted last week about this passage we just finished in chapter six and seven said, in the last half of chapter six, we have a genealogy connecting Moses and Aaron to the patriarchs and to the lineage of the people they were coming to rescue and a reminder that Moses still feels inadequate, but this is a turning point. And I love that she points this out. This is a turning point. After scripture makes this connection, we don't see Moses doubting God's power anymore. He's finding confidence and freedom in God despite his own shortcomings. Hold on to God. Tony Morita. Tony Morita said that obeying God does not mean a pain-free life. It does not mean you will be popular. It does not mean you will be immune from awful problems in a fallen world like cancer. It does not mean you will not encounter serious spiritual warfare in times of despair. So the question is, and I, I put this before you, as we conclude our time in God's word this morning, church, the question is not, will we ever have moments of discouragement? I would go further, not just moments, days, weeks, months, and sometimes years that are fairly characterized by discouragement. The question is this, how can I deal with deep discouragement? For all the self-help out there and all the essential oils, The only real way for you and for me to deal with deep and true discouragement and despair. And maybe you're not in that place this morning. Really, maybe you are doing well, but I'll tell you, if you live much longer, this is coming for you again. It's just part of the human condition, part of living life in a fallen world. But if you're walking in that this morning, The only thing that you can cast yourself on that's going to give you the hope you need to not only sustain you, but to help you live with a vibrance that the children of God can live with through all kinds, all kinds of trials and tribulation 
are the gospel promises that we find from our good God in his word. Do you know them? Will you stand on them and trust them? Will you confess them and and preach to your own heart when you're struggling? I feel this and I feel that, but I know this to be true about my God. That's how we walk through times of despair. In just a minute, I'm going to pray and our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. As I pray over us and as you guys prepare to to give this morning, if you give on Sunday morning as opposed to online or by text throughout the week, if you prepare to drop in your connection cards, letting us know how we can pray for you, making any commitments that you feel led to make, my prayer is that you will cast yourself on the gospel promises of God and say things may not be easy right now. In fact, they may be very, very hard. But my God is good. And he intends good for me. And he will hold my hand and walk me through this for his glory and for my joy and for my formation into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we find going all the way back to your work in the life of Moses and Aaron and your people in slavery in Egypt the sweet promises of the gospel revealed by the one who is faithful. God, you are worthy of everything we give financially. You are worthy of every act of worship, every word of praise, every deed of obedience, and so much more. God, all we are and all we have and all we could ever hope to give already belongs to you. So I pray this morning that your spirit would sweep through this place, that hearts would be revived, that burdens and weighty loads would be released from people in this room, God. And for anyone sitting in this room, God, who is yet to bow their knee to you in repentance, Lord, I pray that you would save them this morning. I pray all this and more. In Jesus' precious and faithful name, amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.